Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Please follow along as I read, and I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open because we'll be going back through several of these verses in our study today. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice that threefold description, the triune description. I know your works that you neither are cold or hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and that shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. The knock at the door. Of all the areas in American life in recent years, one that has been powerfully impacted in a negative way is that of the area of farming and agriculture. There are many reasons for that, some of them relating to the recent so-called COVID unpleasantness. But even before that, small farmers and even some large farmers were having problems because of corporate shenanigans and that sort of thing. But these people have been, some of them at least, become very resourceful And they have begun to use at least some of their, all of their farm property for other purposes to earn money. And one of them is entertainment farming. Some people call it agritainment or agritourism. So what they do to attract paying customers to their farm is they host maybe a country music festival or create a giant corn maze or a petting zoo with calves and goats and pigs. There apparently are some city-dwelling folks who will pay up to $20 for admission and food and amusements at some of these entertainment farms. I heard about one farmer out in Arizona who was making up to $15,000 on a weekend with his rather unusual use of the farm property. Now, it has occurred to me that sometimes we in the church come to resemble something like the entertainment farm. We allow ourselves to become diverted from the central purpose of being a church, both as individual believers and as a congregation. We are supposed to be producing, bearing fruit. But sometimes we would rather entertain ourselves and others, and in so doing, we lose sight of what the Lord requires us to be as his people. So today... We have read what is the last of the seven letters to the churches of Asia, and the Lord reveals his most severe criticism for a church that had become sort of like what I just described. Now, if you look again at verse 14, 
The Lord begins his address to that church, and I, I, I pointed this out as we read it, with this triune reference to himself. He is the Amen, a term that we use at the end of all of our prayers, don't we? Means, may it be so. And then he, re, he uses this to identify himself as God. <clears throat> and then the second of the threefold description is the faithful and true witness. And in that, he contrasts himself with those in that church at Laodicea, the majority of whom were probably faithless and no witnesses for him at all. And then he says he is the beginning of the creation of God. That is in keeping with what John wrote and what the Lord revealed to him in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where he wrote, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God and was God, and nothing that was made was made except through him. All this means to tell us that he is the sovereign creator. He is the origin of all things that exist. Now, look at verse 15. The Lord, knowing about the works of this church, and we've seen this for the other church, I know your works, and for many of them, it's been an occasion to praise them for what they do or have done. But this is an occasion for their condemnation. He says they're neither cold nor hot. That's another way of saying they're lukewarm. And in saying that, he is drawing on the local geography of Laodicea to drive home this point to them. I've said this before. This is a prime example. These various descriptions and words in these texts are another reason that we are drawn back to the immediate context in which these things were spoken and written. They have to do, in this case, with the local geography. It doesn't mean anything to us unless we dig down into the archaeological and uh, geographic understanding of what was going on at that time when these churches existed. So you need to know that Laodicea was located between two other cities. I'm not sure how many miles separated them. They weren't side by side. But on one side was the city of Colossae, Colossae, from which we get the letter to the Colossians. And the other was another city called Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known because it had a, a rich source of mineral spring water. And people liked to drink that spring water, that mineral water, from medicinal qualities. And on the other side was the city of Colossae. They were known for their natural spring waters, but unlike the other, which were hot mineral springs, these were ice-cold sources of fresh water. And many people delight to drink that kind of water. But by the time by the time someone would get the water in Colossae, it had already warmed up and was not ice cold at all. And by the time they got the mineral water from Hierapolis, which had been hot and warm, it had become lukewarm and didn't smell very good. And it was not very tasty. So Jesus is comparing the church at Laodicea to bad drinking water. And in calling them lukewarm Christians, he, he's calling them half-hearted, limp, and ready to compromise rather than stand firm. They were lacking spirit. They were lazy with no concern to move ahead or grow in their faith. They were like a bowl of hot soup that had cooled off to the point of being, well, well at least what for beaver, many people, impossible to eat. I don't know how many of you here this morning have ever put a spoonful of half-warm soup to your mouth. But if you've ever done that, you know, at least for most of us, there's a gut reaction to, to spit it out in a hurry. 
Well, the Lord tells those people at Laodicea <clears throat> that they make him feel the same way in a manner of speaking. And in verse 16, you, have, you may have a translation that says, uh, I will spit you out of my mouth, but the New King James and a few others give you the more literal rendering of the Greek. It means to become nauseated, to vomit. That's not a very happy thought, is it? Well, it's not meant to be. That church's lack of commitment literally makes the Lord nauseated, sick to his stomach, so to speak. And then he also says in verse 15, I, I could wish that you were either cold or hot. He means it would be better for them to be either totally on fire for the Lord or simply not to believe in him at all. Now, that's a rather startling comment for Christ to make, isn't it? Those believers in Laodicea were indeed believers, but they were just barely so. They would have been better off, he's saying, not believing at all. At least, and here's the, the key to why he said this, if that was the case, they could have the, the potential at least to con be converted to a real and living faith in Christ. As things were, they were, as Paul described such people in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, where he described such people as being headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people he warned Timothy, turn away! There are many Christians who fall into that unfortunate category. And back then and also now, these kind of people are kind and very friendly people. And you know, in some parts of our society, going to church is considered to be a very important thing to do, something that people are expected to do, especially here in a place like South Carolina and across the South. Probably not as much as it used to be, but I'm thinking that the South has a higher percentage of church-going people than any other place in the, uh, the United States. Going to church every Sunday is important for a lot of people, and it is important to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, but it is far more important that a person go to church, be involved in worship for the right reasons. Going to church every Sunday does not somehow qualify a man or a woman to be turned into an automatic Christian. I don't know about you, but I hear this a lot. Oh, I know so-and-so, they, they're just not living a good life. I just wish they'd start going to church, as if somehow that's going to turn them around. I haven't heard this saying much lately, but I remember somebody commenting that it's sort of like believing that if, if you go stand in a garage, you'll become an automobile. But no more, you, you no more turn into a car by spending time in a garage than a person can turn into a Christian by going to church. There are many people who don't understand that. And so consequently, what happens with people who have this idea of church, church becomes nothing more than a social club, a, a meeting place of good friends and get together and have some fun and fellowship. Then there's nothing wrong with having fun and fellowship and meeting good friends. But that was the problem the Laodiceans apparently had. They had a form of religion, but they denied its power. I was uh, reading recently about a man and his family who took a trip out west, and one of the places that they went was Yellowstone National Park to see Old Faithful. You know, that geyser that shoots up water like every 30 minutes or so? Main big attraction for going out there. And he said while he was there, there were many other tourists there to see the, the, the geyser, 
And he said there was a large digital clock off to the edge of where everybody would stand, and it was counting down the minutes to the next eruption. It was about 30, 25 minutes, so he and his wife went into the old fateful inn and coffee house that was nearby, and they had a good view of the geyser. There were several big, big picture windows. And he said when that digital clock had counted down to maybe just a minute or so before the next eruption, he and all the other patrons inside got up out of their seats and rushed over to those picture windows to see the big event. But then he said that as if on cue, as if on signal, a whole crew of busboys and waiters descended on those tables, refilled water glasses, and cleared away dishes that were no longer being used. And when Old Fateful erupted, all the tourists oohed and awed and clicked their phone cameras, and some people even applauded. But he said he could not resist glancing over his shoulder at that moment. And he said that he noticed, as he did so, not one waiter or busboy, not even those who had finished doing their chores, looked out that huge picture window to see the geyser. Old Faithful had grown entirely too familiar to them and had lost its power to impress them. I wonder today how many of us are like those waiters and busboys. How many of us barely blink an eye at the news of, say, how the Lord has marvelously blessed another brother or sister in Christ, bringing them through some trial or difficulty in life? Think about that. Now look at verse 17, because here we have a clue to the source of the spiritual lethargy of those people. So on the one hand, apparently they are a very wealthy church. At least that's one source of their problems. And the Lord is not saying here, and I'm not saying, that having lots of money or being wealthy is in and of itself a bad thing. No, indeed, Scripture teaches us that it is the Lord who blesses us with wealth. In Deuteronomy 8.18, we read, And you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. But the danger of having wealth of any sort is that it can become an idol for us. We've said that and heard that many times, haven't we? But it's true. So if we fail to use our God-given abundance and prosperous wealth, if we fail to use that for the spread of his kingdom, then we're not using it to his glory. Now, it's interesting in that regard to compare. Look again at verse 18, Revelation 3, 18. And as you're looking to that, I want you to listen as I read to you Revelation 2, 9. The letter to the church at Smyrna. There's an interesting contrast here. He tells them that you think you're wealthy, but you're poor. But listen to what he says to the church at Smyrna. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Those people were poor in terms of material things, but the Lord counted them rich in spiritual matters. The problem with the Laodiceans in church was not the wealth, but rather their disobedience to the Lord and the way they were using it. Now look again at verses 17 and 18. The city of Laodicea, in order to understand something about the wealth of the place, it was one of the wealthiest cities in all of Asia. And the source of their wealth came from two primary things. Dyeing and selling wool garments and the manufacture of a special ointment for the eyes. Isn't that, you see now, when we read these things, it harkens back, as I said, to things that were going on in that place and in that time. 
People from all over the empire sought to buy the beautifully dyed clothing produced in Laodicea, while the eye ointment or salve that they made was much desired for people for medicinal purposes. And so the Lord ties all those things together in his criticism of that church. They consider themselves well-to-do and rich. He says, in fact, they're miserable and poor. They make an ointment for the eyes that supposedly helps people see better. What does the Lord tell them? He says, you are blind, blind as you could be. They love their fine garments and fancy clothes. The Lord tells them that as a matter of fact, they are naked. Look again at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In other words, if they want to be truly wealthy by God's standards, they need a supply of true riches. Jesus spoke of this in his earthly ministry as recorded in Luke chapter 12. In the New American Standard, it reads this way in in making this point. He says, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And you know, too, in this verse, how the Lord refers to the shame of their nakedness in 3.18. Now, as I've already pointed out, that is something of a take on the vanity of the people in that church and their hyper-devotion to finery and fancy clothes. Let me ask you today, where in the Bible do we first encounter nakedness and shame? Well, in the Garden of Eden, of course. And this is about the fifth or sixth time I've lost count of the number of times just in these three chapters, the book of Revelation has drawn our thinking and consciousness back to the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And so the Lord compares this disobedient church at Laodicea to the disobedience of Adam and Eve. But however that may be, those people at Laodicea, for all of their faults, nevertheless, they are the Lord's people. Look at what he says in verse 19. The ones I love, I rebuke, and I'm calling on you to repent and do that with true zeal and passion. See, there are times when the Lord must rebuke us precisely because he is our king. He is our Lord and Father. He loves us. If you don't belong to Christ, he's not concerned to correct you at all. And that's why the libertines and the reprobate, they're not missing out on anything. They're, they're, they're fully content in their sins, doing what they do. The Lord to whom he extends their grace to are the ones who are drawn to repent and turn. Now, in the next verse, we come to one of the most misquoted and misused quotes in the Bible, and it's the source of the title that I've given this message. Look again at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And so the first part of that verse is used by some folks with well intentions as a motivation for speaking to people in evangelism and and sharing the gospel with unbelievers. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot wrong with it because the verse was never meant to be taken that way. In this, it shares the same misapplication as Matthew 18.20, which is another one that you hear often. Matthew 18.20 uh, says that Jesus says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the implication that people draw from that is that even just a handful of Christians can get together and the Lord will be there among them. Well, I, that may well be true. I'm not saying it isn't. But that's not what Matthew 18.20 is referring to. Some of you already know. 
Jesus is speaking to the apostles about dealing with conflict among the believers. And he, he sort of outlines the steps of church discipline and the way of bringing about reconciliation where two believers have come at crossheads with each other. And he's telling them that you, as the leaders of the church, must make these decisions. And in that context, when you act, you are acting in my name. I'm in the midst of you. You are acting on my behalf. That's what Matthew 18, 20 means. Now here in this case, the idea of the Lord standing at the door and knocking, well, you know, if you just focus on the text, what door would he be knocking on? Well, the door to that church, of course. He's addressing the church here. He's not addressing unbelievers. It may be a lukewarm church. It may be a congregation of backslidden, slack believers, but it is still his church. And to say it again, too often this verse is ripped from its biblical context in order to make it serve some misinformed effort at evangelism. You know, you tell the sinner the Lord's knocking on the door to your heart and you've got to let him in. It's your responsibility. Some of you may have seen the original uh, rendition or some variation of the famous painting that was done by an artist named Holman Hunt. It's called The Light of the World. And that painting has hung in many homes and living rooms and church foyers. And it pictures a, a forlorn looking powerless Jesus knocking at the door of a house, you know, like an, an ancient looking type structure. And it's meant to represent the sinner's heart. And if you see that picture, that painting, and you look carefully, you notice that the only way that door can be opened or unlocked is from the inside. There's no means for it to be opened from the outside. So in other words, Jesus has done all he can do to save the sinner. But the only way the sinner can be saved is by his own free will. He must unlock the door of his mind and heart and fling it open so that Christ can come in and save him. And until he does so, Jesus... Jesus just has to keep on standing outside that door, pitiful and downcast, knocking and knocking and knocking and just hoping that this old sinner will change his mind and let him in. This verse means nothing of the sort. That may serve the purposes of Arminian evangelistic efforts that are not based in Scripture. But what this verse is showing us is not a forlorn, downcast Christ who can't do anything. This verse is showing us the triumphant, risen Christ standing at the door of the church at Laodicea. And he stands there and he knocks and he speaks to every individual believer in that church. They're the ones who've put him outside, we might say, with their neglect, their complacency, and their arrogance. And now he's appealing to them that they might be shaken out of their lukewarmness and restored to fellowship with him. So, in other words... The theme of that verse 20 is not union with Christ for the unbeliever, but communion with Christ for those who are already his. You know, in the ancient world, to dine with someone was a very distinct privilege. It was an intimate occasion, and it typically was a relaxed and very personal social fellowship and sharing. And that's why he says, if you do this, I will come in and sup or dine with you. In those days, the main meal was what we call supper, and it lasted for hours sometimes as people would recline and eat and share with each other face to face. People often say how much they want to be with Jesus and fellowship with him, and that's a good thing. But you know, 
The really astounding thing is that he wants fellowship with us. Praise God that he does. Now, in verses 21 to 22, we have the promise of great victory in Christ. To all who have gone off the rails, who have failed the Lord, he offers a grand opportunity not merely to repent, but to be exalted with him. He calls us to overcome our faults and our failings, and and, and we are to follow his example of overcoming. And what is that example? How did he overcome? He overcame by way of the cross. Our path, too, will be filled with difficulty and suffering in this life because we live in a fallen world and in bodies that have been corrupted by sin. But the Lord reminds us here that we should never, ever forget that what seemed to be Christ's total defeat was, in fact, his total absolute victory. Those believers in the Roman provinces of Asia were going to face some grim days of persecution and suffering. That is, if they were truly standing for Christ, they would. But neither they nor we need fear if we are called upon to suffer. Because in that, we too shall be made more than conquerors, more than overcomers, because of him and through him who loved us. So the Lord encourages them to repent and change their ways so that their future might be bright and victorious. How often, how often do we allow What has happened to us in the past by way of failure or maybe even by way of victory. But our hopes for the future and our expectations are colored by things that have happened in our past. The Lord is telling them, don't get bogged down in that. You know, we are uh, knee deep in college football season. So let me tell you about a college football team, the Northwestern Illinois Wildcats. Quite a few years ago. That team had the dubious honor of being one of the worst college football teams in the country. For example, from the years 1979 and 1982, they set an all-time record by losing 34 consecutive games. They didn't have a winning season for over 24 years. But then, some years back, not too long ago, The Wildcats had a new head coach named Gary Barnett, and they finished that particular season with 10 wins and only two losses. They went on to the Big Ten Conference title, they went to the Rose Bowl, and they ended up being ranked eighth in the entire nation. Now, you can imagine that the head coach that year had quite a few honors bestowed upon him. And at the beginning of the following year's training season, in the um, late summer of that beginning new season, the coach began to prepare his team and he knew that he had to do something to fight the natural tendency of his players to sort of continually look back on that winning season. And so what he did is he called the team together, the staff, the coaches, maybe a hundred people in all, they met in one of the big sports complex auditoriums. And as the players and all the staff filled the seats, Coach Barnett announced that at that time he was going to hand out some of the awards that many of the Wildcat players had earned the year before. And he called these players forward one at a time, and he handed them their, their special certificates, and the entire auditorium burst into wild applause and rejoicing. And to top it all off, Coach Barnett waved the placard that he had been awarded that represented 17 National Coach of the Year awards. And the place went wild as the players began in chanting his name. 
Coach Barnett, Coach Barnett. They were chanting his name. Well, he waited for a few moments for the applause and the chanting to subside. And then he slowly started walking to the side of the stage of that auditorium. And he stopped in front of a big silver metal trash can that he had placed there that had a sign prominently displayed on the front of it that read, Last Season. And then he took one last admiring glance at his award-winning coach placard, and then he dropped it right into that trash can with a loud clang. And as silence further descended on the auditorium, he stepped to the side of that stage. And then on cue, one by one, the stars of that team dropped their certificates and their placards in that trash can on top of his. And soon the trash can was overflowing with awards and the laurels of the previous season. You see, the coach sent a powerful message to the staff and the team without saying a word. What he said and demonstrated in essence was, you know, what you guys did, what you fellows did was terrific. It was remarkable, a great occurrence. But take a look at the calendar. It's a new season. My friends, learning from the past is very important. But the only way that we can achieve great things for Christ is to leave our past failures or even our victories where they are and focus on what the Lord wants us to do now and in the days to come. And by God's grace, we will do that and be victorious and successful through him. Let us pray.